What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, sometimes just saying Jesus feels really good and feels really comforting. It feels really powerful and, and peaceful just to say that name. Hey, this morning we're going to conclude our series of messages called The Messages of Christmas. And understand, there are some powerful messages tucked within the first Christmas. Messages about such things as our destiny. And our destiny as Jesus followers is to become more and more like him and bring him glory by doing all the good things he created and prepared in advance for us to do. Our destiny Jesus followers, it's about becoming, it's about bringing, and it's about doing. And I think that would be a great focus for your new year coming up. Focus on how do I become more and more like Jesus? How do I bring him glory by the life that I live? And, and what are the good things that he prepared in advance for me to do? I really love that message about destiny, that reminder I also love the message we talked about, about our salvation, that it's here, that it's available all, that it's more than just forgiveness, it's about forgiveness and restoration, and that it's by grace through faith. And that message about obedience, that it's, it's often inconvenient, that it's sometimes it's embarrassing, that it comes with the price, and that it's always rewarded. And on Christmas Eve, we talked about, you know, what we see in that first Christmas about God. Maple Grove, God keeps his promises. Amen? That's a good thing. Nothing is impossible with God. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're up against, nothing's impossible for him. And that God's greatest desire is you, is me, is us. And today, the last Sunday of the year 2023, we're going to focus our attention to the wise man and what they teach us about worship. Now, these guys are best known for bringing gifts to Jesus. By the way, we don't know if there were just three of them, right? Actually, some scholars believe that there were actually four wise men. And the fourth guy brought fruitcake. And so he wasn't allowed to make the journey with them. Fruitcake. The cake that's been regifted for 2,000 years. And if you like fruitcake, I'm sorry. If you actually bake some fruitcake, I'm doubly sorry. Here's how I want to pack our conversation this morning. I want to begin by telling you the story of the wise man using Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12 as our guide. And then I want us to pull some lessons about worship from their story. Before we do that, I have a vid, some scripture, and a take two. And First, let's check out this video of some quotes uh, about worship. Amen. Some pretty awesome quotes about worship. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. It's only when men begin to worship that they begin to grow. Like C.S. Lewis, worship is expressing the same delight in God that made David dance. And here's a quote that wasn't up there that I really like. Worship is a response to a relationship we don't deserve. Worship is a response to a relationship we don't deserve. I mean, seriously, like, what should be our response to the all-knowing, all-powerful, always-existing, holy, infinite God desiring to have a relationship with us? It should be nothing other than worship. 
And remember, our choice is not if we will worship, but what or who will worship. And I want you to lean into these passages about worship. Psalm 95, 6. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. Someone say, let us kneel. Someone say, let us kneel. Before the Lord our maker. Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth. Someone say, let all the earth. Tremble before him. And here's a passage that both predicts and describes the kind of worship that Christ would receive, written hundreds of years before he put on flesh and invaded our planet. It's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, talking about Jesus. He was giving authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Maple Grove, earthly kingdoms rise and earthly kingdoms fall, but his kingdom reigns forever. And not only will it never be destroyed, but according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, his kingdom cannot even be shaken. Amen? Amen. Uh, one more passage in Revelation chapter 4, 9 through 11. It, this is a scene going on in, in heaven even as we speak. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy our Lord and God. Someone say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. May God bless the reading of his word. And if you guys would stand with me, we're going to take our take two. I always like to prime the pump. Take two and welcome those around you. Good job. Heavenly Father, as we uh, dig into your word this morning, we just thank you for this time that we can gather with your, with your family in this building, Lord, uh, to worship you, to study, to fellowship together, to laugh. And God, I, I pray that... Uh, um, right now, as we lean into your word, that we'll have ears to hear and that you'll enable me to speak in a way that uh, brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do this. Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 1. We're looking at their story. Matthew writes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, who was, as we mentioned a few weeks back, a very cruel, very crafty, very cunning, very paranoid, very evil, and sadistic leader. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And right away, we discover something uh, interesting. You know, the wise men show up in Jerusalem and not in Bethlehem. 
And they show up after the birth of Jesus, which is contrary to many of our songs and nativity scenes that, that have the, the wise man being at the manger. Yeah, the shepherds were at the manger, but the wise men came sometime later to Jerusalem, maybe when Jesus was maybe, maybe two years old after the birth of Jesus. You know, my daughter Chelsea, who lives in Indiana and, and uh, will be 40 this year if she's watching. <laughs> oh, that means I'm old too, right? Hey, I don't know. Okay. Anyhow, uh, when she sets up her nativity scene, she always has the wise man off in the distance because <laughs> they're, they're, they're on the way to the manger. You don't know how far, but she knows they're not there yet. So she always sets them off in the distance somewhere, but she does include them. And, and uh, so just who are these wise men? Uh, they're basically the professors and the philosophers of their day. Um, originated for a country that we would call today Iraq. They're highly educated, um, trained in medicine and history and religion and prophecy and astronomy. And since they were men who thought deeply about life, it is right to call them wise men. And these men have been trained also in astrology. In the first century, astrology uh, was connected with people's search for God. You see, the ancients studied the stars in order to find answers to the great questions of life. Questions like, who am I? Uh, why am I here? And where am I going? Another important fact to consider about these wise men is that they were highly influential men who served as advisors to kings. Well, they're not kings themselves, it would not be far from the truth to say that these guys are king makers. And what was it that motivated these educated, wealthy, influential men to make a treacherous 1,000 plus mile journey across the desert? Matthew gives, us the, Matthew gives us the answer. They came to see the one born king of the Jews. Uh, they know a baby was born in Judea. I don't know where, they know he's a king, but they don't know his name. And so they come to Jerusalem, which makes sense because that's the capital city. And that's where Jesus was supposed to be born, according to them. And verse 2 adds a detail that has baffled and intrigued scholars and astronomers for 2,000 years. We saw his star as it arose, and we've come to worship him. And question, what was this star that rose in the east? There are many theories about it. One astronomer for from Rutgers University, argues that it was the alignment of the stars and planets that ancient astrologers would see as something significant. You see, Jupiter was considered the planet of kings, and a lunar eclipse of Jupiter in the constellation that was an ancient symbol for Judea would have ignited expectations of a divine birth in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. And, and what these guys have done is they math equations, computer programs they use to chart the alignment of planets, they've determined that this alignment happened at the time of Jesus' birth. And if you want to know more about that, go to YouTube, right? And, and uh, there's a video called The Star of Bethlehem. It's about 90 minutes long, really interesting stuff. I mean, they're charting it back. Hey, here's where this alignment actually happened. Uh, but all I'm going to say about that, right? It's a 90-minute video. I only have and two hours to talk to you this morning. <laughs> but the thing I think is awesome about it is that when the Bible is held up to science, it does okay. <laughs> like, the Bible can hold its own against any truth, anytime, anywhere. Amen? As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of truth, right? Because we have the truth in Jesus. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Whatever this bright star was, we know two things for certain. Its purpose was to get the attention of the wise man. I mean, these guys were students of the stars, and they associated the birth of a great ruler with signs in the heavens. Number two, we know that the God, the maker of heaven and earth, had his hand in this star, and if he wanted to get the attention of these wise men, he chose the perfect way to do it. We saw his star as it arose, and we've come to worship him. And I don't know, most of our images of these wise men are, are three dudes riding on camels, right? But listen, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, there's no way that these educated, wealthy, influential men would have traveled thousands of miles across the desert by themselves. That's not how important people traveled in that time or even today. Instead, they traveled in a very large, you could say, they traveled in what I would call a grand caravan. I actually found a picture of their caravan, okay? <laughs> That's a 2024 grand caravan right there, okay? $50,000. It costs 50K. If you, want, if you put 1000 down, <laughs> I did the math, and you want, in, in four years you want to pay it off, your payment is only... $1,128. You say, hey, you know what? Let me pay it off in five years. Your monthly payment is $924. Say, hey, you know what? Let me pay it off in eight years. Your payment would only be $620. All right? That's free. You didn't want it, but I think that's just crazy, right? I mean, $50,000 for a car. I'm going to run my car till it's dead, right? It's going to be, I'll have to push it and I'll still be in it, right? Anyhow, that's totally not applied to anything we're talking about today. Uh, so these wise men in their grand caravan, uh, they came sweeping into Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. What does pomp and circumstance mean? I looked that up. An, ostent an ostentatious, I said that wrong. If you're here visiting, if you get more than two syllables, I struggle. And this is the way it is. An ostentatious, is that saying it right? It sure didn't sound right. I don't like that word. Great word for hangman, okay? An ostentatious, <laughs> I should have stuck, an O word. <laughs> wow. Display, uh, ceremonial, grander. Flashy and loud. Flashy and loud. <laughs> I knew when I saw that word. No matter how times I did, how do you pronounce and try that again and again? I knew when I stood up here in front of you guys, I would crash and burn. And you guys knew it, and you're waiting for it. And I appreciate you all the more because of that. All right. Uh, anyhow, pump and spinder, they came in. No pump and spinder. <laughs> all right. My gosh, it's my last Sunday of the new year. Define strong. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, they're coming in, everybody's seeing them, and, and, and uh, maybe they had a party, maybe it's like 300 people, it got the attention of the entire city, and notice they, they had no trouble getting an audience with the king, right, which shows, hey, these guys are influential, they got an audience with the king Herod right away, and so this huge caravan is making its way down the streets, and Herod at the time, who was more paranoid than ever, wants to know, hey, why are they here? When he finds out that they've come to worship a new king, Matthew says that Herod is deeply disturbed. 
as he always was whenever he felt that his throne was threatened. And over the years, real or perceived threats to his throne led him to his favorite thing, murder, including murdering a couple of his own sons, murdering one of his wives, and murdering his mother-in-law. You notice that Matthew says that not only was Herod deeply disturbed by the arrival, but so was all of Jerusalem. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So why is the whole city disturbed? Because they know Herod. They know he's a nut job. Uh, and they know this paranoid king is going to do something really crazy, and they're just waiting for whatever that would be. They knew it would not be good. Again, he wants to know where this threat to his throne was located, so he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And, and, and did you notice that like the, the leading priest didn't even have to look it up? Like they, it's like they already know the answer. Oh, the Messiah, according to the prophet Micah, is coming from Bethlehem. And listen, if we add what the scribes already know to what the wise men saw, we can conclude that the signs of Jesus coming were clear enough for anyone to see. And here's the point. God always speaks loud enough for a heart that's willing to hear. Right? I mean, God is always speaking. A matter of fact, despite me, he's been speaking to us the last few minutes. And the question is, are we listening? Uh, do we want to listen? Do, do we want to hear from him? Yeah, the wise men heard and they did something. The scribes and religious leaders, they, they knew and, and they did nothing. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And Matthew doesn't record their answer, but we do know that just two verses down, that, that Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every boy two years old and younger. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, now, now why doesn't Herod go right away with them? Because again, these are not just three dudes on the camel. And Herod did not want to have to deal with these wise men, their military escort, and all his servants when he decided to deal with baby Jesus. Matthew continues, after meeting with the king, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It was ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So apparently, as the wise men set out for Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of Jerusalem, the star they saw suddenly reappeared. And verse 9 is very specific. It says, the star went on before them until it came and stood over the very home where Jesus was now living in as a toddler. The star went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Now, that doesn't sound like a completely natural, random star, does it? Instead, it's 
sounds like a miraculous star created by God to lead these wise men to the exact place where Jesus was. I mean, who needs Google Maps when you have God leading you with his star, right? And I love their response to seeing the star. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Uh, The Greek says, literally, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And why were they so joyful? Uh, Because they knew that their search had not been in vain. Uh, And I think it's worth noting that even though their goal was not reached, right, because they haven't seen Jesus yet, they haven't realized their goal yet of seeing him, yet they still rejoice with great joy because the star was a sign that what they were searching for would happen very soon. And you know, I'm convinced that God wants us to do the same thing, rejoice with great joy when we look upon our forever in heaven. No, we're not there yet. We're still here. And here is not always good. And here can be hard and difficult, right? But one day, Brothers and sisters, one day the sky will crack open. Uh, One day the trumpet will sound. One day our king will return and take us to our incredible mind-blowing forever. Amen? Amen? So even though we're still here and it's still hard and difficult, we also can rejoice greatly because our forever is coming soon. Then they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Have you ever wondered if they were a little disappointed when they finally got there? After all, he did not look like a king. His home was far from a castle. He had no scepter in his hand. He commanded no armies, gave no speeches, passed no laws, no royal decrees came from his lips. In fact, at the time, Jesus was just learning how to walk and how to talk. The outward eye, he was nothing but a peasant child born in dire poverty, but to these wise men, he was a king. In fact, as far as these wise men were concerned, Jesus possessed more royalty stumbling around in diapers than Herod did strutting around in his royal robes. I mean, somehow these wise men saw beyond the present, they saw into the future, and, and they bowed down in faith and worship toddler Jesus. And they somehow know, I don't know how they know, maybe it's because of the legacy of the, the prophet Daniel. Like, like maybe they actually knew that verse I read earlier that spoke about Jesus, that said he was giving authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Bottom line, somehow they knew that one day this toddler would be a king and they unashamedly and full of great joy fell on their faces before him. And Maple Grove, don't miss the power and the sheer audacity of the scene. I mean, it would be like a, a great leader from a country, say like China or, or Russia or England rolling into our country. And you got this caravan of black SUVs with flags waving on the side. And they pull into a subsidized housing community. And there in the front yard is this toddler playing in the dirt. 
and, and these leaders from these other nations get out of their SUVs and they get down on their knees and fall down face before this toddler playing in the dirt. That would get your attention, right? What is going on here? That's what went on 2,000 years ago. And I love the contrast. Uh, when the wise men meet Herod, they didn't worship him. When they meet Jesus, these intelligent, influential men fell on their faces before him. What Herod craved and demanded, the Christ child received without even asking. And now we come to the last detail, the one they're pretty famous for. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And bringing gifts, right? You could meet a great leader, you, you would bring gifts back then. And even today, right? Um, when leaders go to other countries, often they are giving gifts. And these gifts, there's more to them than meets the eye, right? They brought Jesus gold, one of the rarest and most expensive metals. It represents the wealth and power of a king. Uh, they brought them frankincense, which was used in temple worship. Uh, they, they brought myrrh, uh, which was kind of a perfume made from the uh, petals of roses. It was used in beauty treatments. When, when mixed with vinegar, it was an anesthetic. And when a person died, they would anoint their body with myrrh. And gold pointed to his majesty, for he is a king. Frankincense pointed to his deity, for he's God. And the myrrh pointed to his humanity, for he was destined to suffer and die. Now, now did the wise men know the significance of, of, of these gifts when they gave it? Uh, probably not. But we can know for sure that God arranged it so that the gifts they gave would point to who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is a king. And point to what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to put on flesh and suffer and die. So they brought those gifts to him. Then Matthew wraps up their story with these words. When it's time to leave, they return to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, that's their story. What do they teach us about worship? Five things. Number one, worship begins with seeing. Yeah. Uh, we saw his star as it arose. Uh, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshiped him. I understand, worship begins with seeing. And you know, I find it interesting that even though the star was visible in the sky, not everyone really saw it. I don't know, maybe they weren't paying attention. Maybe they weren't looking. Or maybe like us at times, that we've seen something for so long that we, we don't really see it any longer. Uh, I still remember the first time that I drove off of I-64 in my car and got off at Pantops. And I got up there, and I'd lived in flat Florida for a long time. And I got to the crest, and I could see the Blue Ridge Mountains. I go, and it was fall. I go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Now when I drive there, I go, oh my gosh, the Chick-fil-A line is not that long. I think I can go in there now, right? I don't even see the mountains anymore, right? That can happen. Worship begins with seeing. Uh, the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You know, yesterday I was, morning I was getting ready to run my dogs and I, I shut my car door and I looked up, I go, oh my gosh, 
God is awake. And I, I had to take a picture. It's like, come on. Like, are you kidding me? God's a morning person, right? <laughs> he said, it's morning. Wake up. Wake up. The sun is shining. Right? But it's just absolutely beautiful. The things that God does in the skies, they really do proclaim his glory, don't they? Nothing like it. Worship begins with seeing, which I think is why Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Understand, when we see things like his creation, and we consider that all these things came about simply by him speaking, we will stand in awe of him, and we will want to worship him. Worship begins with seeing, seeing creation. And like the wise men seeing Jesus, when they saw the child, that they worshiped him. Now understand, when we see Jesus, when we see who he is, when we see what he did, we see the impact that he's had on our world, we too will want to worship him. I mean, what did the ladies running for the tomb do when they saw Jesus? Uh, they fell at his feet and, and, and they worshiped him. Matthew 28, verse 9. And, and, and what these guys do on the, uh, on the mountains of Galilee uh, when they met Jesus? It says that when they saw him, they, they worshiped him. Worship begins with seeing. Brothers and sisters, lift up your eyes and see. God is all around us. Question, but are we even looking? Next, worship requires seeking. When they saw the star, we came to worship him. It's not like, hey, uh, we saw the star and grabbed some coffee and sat on a porch. No. <laughs> they started seeking. True worship always leads to seeking, right? Always leads to drawing close to the thing that we just saw. Here are a few verses about seeking. Uh, this one here is one of Mike Drew's favorite verses. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you. And it's not like God is playing a game of cosmic hide and seek with us. It's just that there's something about who God is that we will not find God to the degree that God wants us to find him unless we want God more than we want anything else until we want God more than we want anything else until we search for him with our all of our heart we will not find God to the degree that he wants us to find him I love what God said in Isaiah this is so good I, I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found brothers and sisters today 1231-23, God is saying to you and to me, I want you to find me. I want you to know me. I, I want you to have a relationship with me. I want to be found by you. And Jesus said, seek and you will find. But why when we learn that worship begins with seeing, it requires seeking, and worship is grounded in Scripture. Isn't it crazy how everything in the Bible starts with the same letter, right? <laughs> Us preachers, man, we can make that work. 
Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. I understand, when they got sidetracked in Jerusalem, they went to the word of God for direction. And, and, and maybe as the year 2023 is winding down for you, um, maybe you are sidetracked in Jerusalem. Maybe you're not sure what to do. Maybe you're not sure where to go. Maybe you're not sure who to be. This book has the direction. When you get sidetracked in Jerusalem, not knowing what to go, where to go, who to be, go to the Word of God for direction. Understand, Scripture is essential for worship. The Scripture helps us see God more clearly, more fully, more accurately. And Scripture guides us as we seek Him. Jesus said in John 4 that those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And listen, over the years, I, I found that Scripture is not only grounds and is foundational to worship, but that Scripture also propels, ignites, and sustains my worship. Like just, uh, I don't know if you're like me, my glasses on and off all the time. This morning, I spent 15 minutes trying to find where I had left my glasses, right? Because your glasses are off, you can't find them. I, I said, man, I'm doing good on time this morning. And I spent 15 minutes upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, trying to find my glasses. My wife laughs because she no longer enters my insanity, she calls it. All right? But anyhow, if I, if I get done reading Scripture and I forget where they are, just tell me. Steve, they're on your table. All right, here we go. Check this out. This kind of ignited my, my worship this morning. Actually, last night, sorry. First Corinthians 15, part of our faith comes from hearing. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all will be changed in a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and I'm reading those words, and it's like, then he says this, so, therefore, you know, based on what I just said, you know, that one day, one day this mortal dying body is to be transformed into a body that will never die. That one day Jesus come back, I'm going to get a body that will never die. In light of the fact that, that, I, that death and sin have been swallowed up in victory because of Christ, and, and because that victory is not dependent on what I do or don't do, but the death of Jesus, and therefore I, I can stand firm and let nothing move me and always give myself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that my labor in the Lord is not in vain. Listen, one day I'm going to have a new body. One day you're going to have a new body. One day you're going to be in heaven and transformed forever. And I read that, like, that's my future. 
Yeah, yeah I got a short-term future that may seem ah, not so good. But my long-term future is so bright, right, that I need to wear shades, right? <laughs> okay, there's a song that did that a long time ago, and uh, I had a pity laugh there. I appreciate that. <laughs> Worship begins with seeing. It requires seeking. It's grounded in Scripture. It's best expressed in submitting. You know, they bowed down and worshiped him, and bowing down is a sign of respect and submission. It's a, it's a visible acknowledgement that you're in the presence of someone who's greater than you are. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The 24 elders fell down before him, laying their crowns at his feet. I have an equation for you. God is greater than you. And here's the deal. The wise men teach us that worship is made visible in our submission. God, you're in charge, not me. God, your will, not mine. God, your perfect way, not my crooked way. God, your purpose, not my agenda. Listen, we see that submission in the final words that Matthew wrote about them, right? They went a different way. You know, they had already booked their hotel, planned out their journey, and they took a different way. Why? Because God told them to take a different way. And here's the deal. Worship that does not result in submission is not really worship. Worship that does not result in submission is not really worship. Uh, Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Jesus said, hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you sing those songs? Why do you lift your hands? Why do you read those books? Why do you attend those conferences? Why do you wear those t-shirts? Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. And here's the deal. Every time you submit to God, every time you do what he says, every time you live the way he calls, it's an act of worship. And you don't need a guitar or a song to do it. Understand, every time you forgive those who hurt you, that's worship. Every time you pray for your enemies, that's worship. Every time you reach out to the hurting, that's worship. Every time you share your faith with the lost, that's worship. Every time you overlook an offense, that's worship. Every time you say no to that temptation, that's worship. Every time you give generously, that's worship. Every time you put others before yourself, that's worship. Conversely, when we refuse to submit to what God says, it's an act of rebellion and defiance. Instead of bowing before God, it's actually, we're actually turning our backs on God. And that's the ultimate sign of disrespect for a ruler. Here's a photograph I grabbed off the internet. These are a bunch of police officers in, in, in New York City. And uh, the mayor of New York at the time is speaking at a funeral of a police officer. And these Officers felt, hey, you know what? The mayor doesn't respect us. The mayor doesn't have our back. And so when he got up to speak, all these guys, they turned their back on him as he spoke. As a sign of, hey, we don't respect you and we're not for you, right? And listen, when you and I refuse to submit to God, that's what we're doing. God, I know you told me to do that, but I'm not going to do that. Because I don't respect you and I don't respect what you asked me to do. I'm not sure that's a good thing to do. Worship begins with seeing requires seeking. It's grounded in Scripture. 
expressed by submitting and demand sacrifice. They bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In order to worship, these guys made some pretty significant sacrifices, right? I mean, their grand caravan didn't have AC, heated seats, DVD player. And they brought expensive gifts with them. Like they thought ahead. They planned out their giving. Like they didn't arrive in Bethlehem and and go, let's see. Dang. That dinner and show in Jerusalem cost more than I thought. Uh, Hey, we'll catch you next time, Jesus. No, they they actually planned and brought with them what they were going to give. Is that how it is when you give? Like, do you plan your giving ahead of time? Like, is giving to God a line item in your budget? And, and when you give, do you see it as an act of worship? I don't always do this. I should. Like, when you write that check, when you give online, do you see it as an act of worship? Do you, do you picture yourself saying, God, I'm bowing before you, and God, as I give this to you, I want you to know that you're worthy that I see you as worthy, that what you did and who you are, I see that as worthy. Worship always results in sacrifice. In fact, the very first time the word worship is used in the Bible, it's in the context of sacrifice. Uh, There's a rule in understanding the Bible called the the law of first usage. Like the first time a word is used kind of has significance. Did you know when the word worship is used for the first time? It's in Genesis chapter 22. You know that chapter, it is when, when, when uh, Abram goes to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain. And it, in verse 5 of that chapter, we find the worship for the first time. He said to his servants, Abraham said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. You're going up there to sacrifice your son. We will, we will worship and then we'll come back to you. And we know God stopped him. He didn't know that at the time, but he did know that God will keep his promise and somehow, young, somehow me and the boy are coming back. I don't, I don't really understand it. I'm just going to follow God's command, but he made a promise. He's going to keep it, so I'm going to keep doing what he asked me to do. But that's the very first time we see the word worship. Uh, there's a, a great passage in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Um, David wants to set up an, an, an altar to sacrifice to God and and there's this, there's this field he, he wants to buy for it. And the guy who owns the field thinks, hey, I'll give it to the king and win some points with the king. And, and David says, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord by God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So I'm not going to make a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. And Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, like, Do you appreciate God's mercy? Are you glad that God does not treat you as your sins deserve? That God continues to show mercy to the sin that you keep on committing and committing, even though you said you wouldn't? I urge you, brothers and sisters, review God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, as we get the final stretch in this conversation, I want us to consider the three responses to Jesus we see in Matthew chapter 2. 1 through 12. The response of the wise man was worship. Seeing, 
seeking, scripturing. I needed an ing, so I made up a word. Uh, submitting and sacrificing. The response of Herod was hostility. I mean, just the idea of Jesus moved into murder. Like, he would do anything he could to keep Jesus from messing up his life, from messing up his power. Uh, the priests and teachers of the law, their response was apathy. Uh, like, these guys knew where Jesus the Messiah was born. You know, the, the, the wise men make a thousand plus mile trip. These guys wouldn't even go down the block to see him. Apathetic. Oh yeah, Messiah's born in Bethlehem. I guess, I guess he's there now, but yeah, we're not going to even bother. Question, what is your response to Jesus this morning? Is it hostility? And listen, you don't have to plan a murder campaign to be hostile to Jesus. It simply means that you don't want Jesus in your life it means that you don't want Jesus telling you what to do and telling you how to live. And so you will try to keep Jesus as far away as you possibly can. And maybe that's you. I don't know. You know. Or, or, or maybe your response is apathy. I mean, you've been doing this church thing for a long time. And you've heard all that talk about having a relationship with Jesus. And you even know where to go to have it. You know that, hey, if I wanted this relationship, I, I got to read the Bible. I have to be in prayer. I have to hang out with people who are chasing after God. But you're not putting in any effort. You're not willing to go down the block to find him. You don't open the book. You don't pray. And you don't hang out with people who are chasing after God. And listen, if either of these responses have been yours, they don't need to be yours, do they? Right? They can change. They can change. Or is your response worship? Worship begins with seeing. Do you see him? It involves seeking. Are you seeking after him with all your heart? It's grounded and united by scripture. Like, like are you in this book? Yeah, I'm going to be sending out at the text for our, our next faith comes from here. You know, and uh, it'll go out today. I'll send an email. I'll send a text with the link that you can join us in our U version, right? Yeah, we all make New Year's resolution. There's a, the best one you can make, bar none, is to make a commitment to every day read this book. A chapter a day takes maybe five to seven minutes. If you say you're too busy to do that, I'm not sure you're telling the truth. Five to seven minutes a day. The best thing you can do for your family, the best thing you can do for your marriage, the best thing you can do for yourself, the best thing you can do for an employer is every day to spend time in this book because it's not just a book. It's God's word and it's living and active. Amen? Amen. And worship is visibly expressed in submission. Like, like maybe when you came here today, you thought, God wants you to worship with a song. I guess, no, I'd really rather have you worship me by submitting. I'd re really have you worship me today by submitting that area of your life that you have not done that yet. Remember, when you submit to God, it's worship. And worship demands sacrifice. Are you sacrificing? 
Does the worship of God cost you anything? Does it cost you time? Does it cost you treasure? Does it cost you convenience? Does it cost you comfort? I'll tell you what. As you set goals for the new year, I think making worship, making seeing, making seeking God, scripturing, submitting, and sacrificing, man, making that a goal. If worship is at the forefront of a new year, it is going to be a good new year. Amen? Amen? Okay. I don't know if that meant you meant it or you're ready for me to let you go home. Listen to this as we go ahead and stand as I read this one. And then we're going to write into the song. It's a good, this is good stuff right here. It's what, it's Psalm 95, verse 6, but I'm adding verse 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. Come, let us worship and bow down. Uh, Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Uh, We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. If only you, the psalmist writes, if only you would listen to his voice today. Father God, If only we, if only I would listen to your voice today. That you're worthy of a worship that sees and seeks and submits and sacrifices. And God, as the the new year beckons, Lord, like it's 12 and a half hours away, I pray that we, as we're about to sing, that we make room for you. And God, thank you for even wanting to be in our room to begin with. You're pretty amazing. Amen.